Welcome to the PEDS-NP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm Becky Carson, Clinical Assistant Professor at Catholic University, and if you know anything about me, it's that, for better or worse, my life is all about poop. My doctoral study centered around the implementation of a nurse-initiated pathway for acute gastroenteritis which I then subsequently translated at another facility as I mentored another DNP student. Then I worked on a committee of constipation standardization, not to mention the fact that I married a pediatric gastroenterologist and we have a diapered toddler who likes to tell us, poo, every time he passes gas. I bet you think you know what this week will be about, don't you? Well, you're wrong. I wanna talk about growth. Let's get started. We were all taught in nursing school that pain is the fifth vital sign. Well, I'm here to talk about the sixth vital sign, growth. Please don't nitpick me on the nuances of my assertion where technically we need to be taking a weight, a length or height, and a head circumference, and let me lump them all together to say they are vital measurements in pediatric care. I feel like more and more I'm seeing acute care implications of this because something was missed in primary care. So I'm going to cover some of the concepts related to growth that you need to know, whatever your pediatric specialty may be. As we learned this week, think of your patient as a car engine. You have to put fuel in the engine to make it go, right? Well, there are three ways that you might get stuck on the side of the road calling AAA. First is you're not putting enough fuel in the engine. That's the most common reason we see this problem in pediatrics. It could be something as simple as mom is mixing the formula incorrectly, maybe she was confused with the powder, or maybe there's some food insecurity in the family. Or it could be more complicated, like a developmentally delayed child with sensory integration issues and severe picky eating. The next problem we run to is if your engine springs a leak. This is a malabsorption problem, and it might warrant getting some help from our other specialty colleagues to run some advanced studies. Things like celiac disease, cystic fibrosis, inflammatory bowel disease, or even short gut. The last problem we see is engine malfunction. That's my catch-all for increased calorie expenditure that's related to acute or chronic disease. Think burns, infections, congenital heart disease, prematurity, all that have increased calorie requirements. Remember that there are certain diseases that have their own growth charts. Turner syndrome, Down syndrome, prematurity, among others. So when you chart any of these children on a regular old CDC growth chart, that child is going to be hanging below the bottom of the third percentile. But when you plot them on the appropriate chart for their underlying condition, they miraculously plot out to the 50th percentile. Please don't be that person that refers a patient to GI for failure to thrive and forgets that there's a separate growth chart for Down syndrome. Let's also be careful with the use of the diagnosis failure to thrive. Failure to thrive is classified as undernutrition that's identified in a child in the first three years of life whose weight for age is less than the fifth percentile, or they have decreased growth velocity resulting in their weight falling more than two standard deviations, so those are the percentile lines, on the chart for more than three to six months. Failure to thrive cannot be attributed to any other organic or inorganic cause. It's a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that we have to rule out other etiologies of growth failure. And honestly, we often find a reason during the workup. You will certainly need a multidisciplinary collaboration in managing these patients that truly have failure to thrive, and it might even require inpatient admission. 
but you need to be very careful in who you label as failure to thrive when weight gain isn't going as expected because failure to thrive obviously has major implications that need to be managed with urgency and taken very seriously. Let's talk some more about which growth chart to use and how to assess how your patient is growing. In the United States, the WHO growth charts are recommended to use in both breastfed and formula-fed infants and children from birth to two years of age. The WHO growth charts reflect growth patterns among healthy children all over the world, not just the United States. We want to compare our patients' growth to how they should grow, not how they can grow. From a primary care perspective, you should be looking at the growth before walking into the room for a well child visit so that you have an idea of whether growth is an issue that you need to dedicate some time to during your discussion. Is the patient small because mom and dad are small? Or is your patient growing poorly because the parents live in a food desert and mom works two jobs and isn't home to cook in time before the kids go to bed? Are the parents giving almond milk as a vegan option without realizing its nutritional shortcomings in infants and toddlers? Or maybe she's followed this petite curve all her life. Either way, you need a justification as to why the growth curve is the way it is or a plan for a workup and or solution. Remember that children should generally keep the same trajectory of their weight over the course of their life, give or take a few percentile points. And when failure to gain weight occurs, the human body will attempt to preserve length and head circumference for as long as it can. Once caloric intake is so low, we see length suffer and stunting can occur, which can have long lasting effects that prevent the child from reaching their full genetic height potential, even with catch up growth. The head circumference is the last component of growth to suffer in young children as the body is gonna put its greatest effort towards maintaining brain growth for as long as possible. There are, of course, a few situations where weight loss is normal. We expect newborns to lose up to 10% of their birth weight in the first few days of life, but they should regain this by two weeks of age. We also might see an intentional weight loss in a child who's overweight or obese, and they're making lifestyle modifications for more healthy living. But the goal in weight loss in prepubertal patients is often to stay the same weight so that we can allow for a thinning out as they grow taller. Just make sure that if you're monitoring weight loss, that it occurs in a sustainable way over time and that we're continuing to ensure appropriate weight loss and good nutrition with macro and micronutrients. I see students misclassify patients often and we should be using the CDC guidelines for BMI in children over age two. This refers to a BMI percentile for their age that's based on a weight to height comparison, which should be from the fifth to 85th percentile. We use the term overweight for the 85th to 95th percentile and obese for a BMI that's greater than the 95th percentile. For children who are under age two, we're looking at a weight for length percentile. They're considered overweight if the weight for length is greater than the 95th percentile, and we don't ever classify children under age two as obese. The last reason we often see weight loss is in acute illness. Remember from our discussions on acute gastroenteritis that weight loss in the short term is water loss from dehydration. You can calculate percent dehydration based on a previously weight if there was one taken, which is one of my favorite things to do when I see children with acute illness and their parents are worried. Take the difference between their previous and the new weight, divide by the previous weight, and multiply by 100 to get the percent weight change because y'all know I love objective data. 
From that answer, we can tell the parent whether their child has no dehydration or a mild, moderate, or severe dehydration, and we can make decisions about providing reassurance and encourage ORT versus the need for IV fluids. You could also make the same estimation with a clinical dehydration tool. Remember that children with mild and moderate dehydration can be rehydrated orally, and only severe dehydration or intractable vomiting despite ondansetron warrants IV fluids. If these children are going to go home, then we need to give them plenty of education on how to continue ORT, despite the expectation that children will continue to have likely a few more episodes of vomiting indoor diarrhea. I could talk for hours about growth because it's such an interesting and important feature that's unique to pediatric healthcare. We're so lucky to get to watch kids grow, and it's the job of both the primary and acute care NP to maximize their health and wellness, despite any comorbidity. So remember to look closely at all of your vital signs, especially the sixth one, their growth charts, because you're doing this for the kids. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.